listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So these texts, I think, do need some explanation. This is some pretty weird stuff. So Moses is leading the people through the wilderness. And when we get to Numbers 21, we're near the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. They've been out there wandering a long time. Uh, lots of zigzagging and crossing and back and forth. And there have been a couple of things that have been kind of highlights. The Lord's come down. The people have prophesied. But mostly it's been tough. It has been a long, hard time in the desert. And I have not spent 40 days or 40 years in the desert, but I do feel like I've spent about a year in the desert, in the COVID desert. Actually, I feel like it's been about 40 years, <laughs> but it's, it's, only been, it's only been about a year. And so as sometimes the Hebrews would do, they would complain. They would grumble. They're like, it's too hot. It's too dry. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. Or what food we do have, we don't like it. <laughs> it actually says that. Like they're tired of the food that they had. Man, I've been tired of the food that I've had. This is, this is really speaking to me today. But they start to complain and they start to grumble. And they're like, you know what? It wasn't so bad in Egypt, was it? I mean, we were slaves. But at least we had some place to live. We were slaves. But at least we had some, something to eat. And we start to, they, they start to look back at a time that surely must have been horrible. But somehow they're kind of justifying it as being okay. It's a, it's a nostalgia. Nostalgia is a dangerous thing, my friends. Nostalgia will tell us that there was some time in the past that we longed for that was somehow pristine. But if you think, you're in, if you, think you have problems now, you don't want to return to the past because it was the past that brought you here, right? If we, if we went back to the same time we had, it would eventually precipitate to the point that we're, here we are again. So we don't want to re, you know, recreate the cycle. There must have been something wrong in the past that brought us to where we are. And so what happens here, in kind of a strange turn of events, because this is not the first time they've complained, but when they've complained in the past, God was really patient really kind, really gentle. He's like, okay, I'll provide for your needs. So they, you know, they got into this one place and the waters were too bitter. So he made the water sweet or they got to this place and it was too dry. And so he had water come from a rock and he made it to another place and they were just too hungry. And so he kind of gave them some food. Like it's always been kind of nice. But this time they complain and it says, God sent fiery serpents among them to bite them. I'm like, oh, maybe I complained one too many times. Maybe, you know, it's not, it's not like they had murdered or committed adultery or, you know, oddly enough, created a graven image because that is kind of what they're instructed to do here, which I think is part of what makes this text so bizarre. But they're getting bit. Some of them are dying. And so the most, one of the kind of unique things that happens in Numbers happens here. It says that they confess their sins. They're aware of 
of what they've done wrong. And God kind of immediately responds. I see, I see the, the snakes, the, the fiery serpents, as kind of a symbol for the consequences of their sin. And, and sometimes I think, especially in the world today, at least my world, I, can, I, I lean so much into the grace of God, that the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, that I know is available to us. And we celebrate every week that, that sometimes maybe, maybe I'm taking sin a little too lightly. Like, it's, it's a real thing. It's, it's something worth staying away from. It's worthy of confession and repentance. And that's exactly what they do here. The people confess their sins, and God says, all right, Moses, we're going to take care of these folks. <laughs> that's what God always does. We confess our sins, and God forgives us. God is quick and ready to forgive. And so they confess their sins, and he tells Moses, I want you to fashion a serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up and when they look at it they'll be healed what like is that magic and did God not read the Ten Commandments like that second commandment said don't make a graven image like don't fashion images of stuff don't make idols and God said I want you to fashion a snake and stick it on a pole and hold it up. I mean, that's, that's, a, pro, that's a problematic idea. And, it, and, it was, and the Jews thought it was, it was problematic too, at least eventually they would. Like later in the story, King Hezekiah will say, take the serpent that Moses fashioned and destroy it because you have made it an idol. So they were starting to sacrifice to the serpent as opposed to sacrificing to God. So certainly we have a tendency of taking the things that God gives us sometimes and turning them into our gods, like our stuff, as opposed to worshiping God, God's self, and not the stuff that we receive from God. I mean, I think in our context, sometimes we even do it with scripture. Like we, we kind of idolize scripture. We, don't, we ought not be idolizing anything. There's another Jewish text. Um, it was around, it's still around, and you'll find it in, in kind of Orthodox and kind of Catholic, Catholic Bibles. It's called the Wisdom of Solomon. It too spoke of this passage, this passage from Numbers about um, fashioning the, an idol in the shape of a snake. And it said this, it said that when, when God instructed Moses to do that, it was still God that was healing. It, it wasn't the idol that was doing the healing. It was God. I mean, it sounded to me like the wisdom of Solomon had become, you know, a Southern Baptist preacher. <laughs> like, when you get baptized, it's not the actual water that's cleansing you. It's God that's cleansing you, and the water is just a symbol. <laughs> that, that passage from the wisdom of Solomon sounds to me a lot like, like that idea that we're not focusing on the thing, we're trying to focus past the thing, which is what icons have always been about. Icons are not something to be focused on, but to be focused through. They're, they're a way that you look to see, but to see past what you're seeing to something that's beyond that. They're not idols, 
their windows, their icons. They, they point to something more. And in this case, the symbol gets kind of infused with this presence, which I think is what, what's happening here, that, that this symbol had become this means by which God would show God's faithfulness to forgive and to heal. And he does that for the people. Now, that's a pretty odd symbol, right? For healing, a serpent on a stick. But if, if you're familiar with, if you're familiar with um, the iconography of the medical profession, right, you'll remember seeing this symbol. There's, there's two that sometimes get used. There's one that's a staff and it has two snakes around it and it's kind of winged at the top. Do you know the look I'm talking about? Sometimes maybe your healthcare, like Blue Cross, Blue Shield or somebody, um, or your, your doctor's office might have that symbol. Ironically, that's not the ancient symbol of healing. That's actually the staff of, of Hermes, uh, the Greek god, or, or Mercury, uh, the Roman god. And it was a staff that was used to kind of deceive people. It was for deception. Um, but there was a different one. It's just a single staff, a single rod, with a single snake around it. So if you see like an ambulance, on an ambulance or on an EMT, that's what they'll have. It's like a, like a blue cross often, or sometimes it's red, but it's a single staff and it's a snake kind of wrapped around it. That's the rod or the staff of Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. And it's the same idea, right, that, that the, a couple of things might be happening there. One is that there's this ancient idea that the, the thing that can kill you can also save you. Um, and so if like from the venom of the snake, you can make an anti-venom and it can, it can heal. Or the idea that a drug, a drug can be dangerous, right? You can overdose on drugs, but drugs can also offer cures. Um, for those literary critics, uh, this is kind of what Jacques Derrida is doing in his, in his Pharmacon when he's talking about kind of deconstruction, the way words don't hold meaning, but they, the meaning somehow exists in the midst of the difference between the possibilities, right? The drug is the cure, and the drug is, is the poison. Snakes have this other idea, too. There's this other concept about snakes. A snake sheds its skin. A snake can, can leave its past and kind of rejuvenate. And so some have suggested maybe that that imagery is behind what's happening here. But whether it's the rod of Asclepius or whether it's this staff of Moses, it's interesting that a symbol of death can become a symbol of life. A symbol of poison, that which can kill you, can become the very means by which your salvation is provided. And this brings us to the passage in John, which we're also very familiar with, right? This is Nicodemus. He, he's a, a ruler of the Pharisees. He comes to Jesus at night, perhaps kind of sneaking in. You know, he, he, believes, he believes a lot about Jesus. He's like, surely, he says this to Jesus. He says, surely you must come from God, for no one else could do what you're doing unless they came from God. But he's not saying that in the light of day. He's like coming at night saying, meeting with them, kind of just the two of them, and saying, look, what, 
What, what are you teaching? What, what, what's happening? What must take place? And Jesus says, like, you must be born from above. You must be born anew. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, but I'm too big. I can't be born again. I'm, I can't go back into my mother. And Jesus is like, Nick, it's a metaphor. Like, what he actually says is, aren't you a teacher? <laughs> like, can you keep up with me or not? Because I, I, thought, I thought I was being clear. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born of water and spirit. And then he says this. Jesus says this. Jesus hearkens back to this story from Numbers about the serpent, the, the bronze serpent being lifted up. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, lifted up during Jesus' day had become a euphemism for crucifixion. Crucifixion is horrible. Crucifixion is a form of public execution that is tortuous. Like, it is a horrible way to die. Like, if you crucify someone, you're not just wanting to kill them, you're wanting to punish them on the way to killing them. <laughs> like, killing them is, is a punishment, but you're going to make them suffer before they die. And it, it was used by the Romans not just to kill people who were guilty of capital crimes, but it was used as a deterrent to keep other people from following in their footsteps. Look, this is what you get. There had been this kind of Jewish revolutionary um, leader. His name was Judas, uh, Judas the Galilean. And he kind of predates Jesus just by about, you know, a few decades. And it was a failed attempt. He, he, he rallied this group of people in Galilee and they were going to fight Rome. And Rome came and crushed them and crucified lots of them. Like, we don't know how many. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that they crucified 2,000 uh, men in Galilee. Now, that number seems to be maybe, maybe too much. I don't know. Josephus, Josephus is like your friend who tells the story about how he caught a fish, right? And I caught this fish, and you should have seen it. You know, the next time you hear the story, the next time you hear the story. So, right? So Josephus with his numbers is a little iffy. However, a lot, a lot, a lot of Galileans were crucified. And Jesus and his disciples, when they were boys, would have still had in their collective memory like what it was like when the Romans came and crushed Judas the Galilean and that revolt. They knew what the Romans could do. And that idea of a cross was kind of heavy in their collective memory. So that when Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. They would have all known exactly what that was. The cost that that would have caused. Or that cost that that would have, have um, required. And so when Jesus says, refers to himself, a little enigmatically as the son of man, but still it's a self-reference. And he says that he, like, like the bronze serpent, must be lifted up. Let's, let's think about that. So the, 
the cross is the ultimate image of death, of, of punishment, right? It's, it's the sign of death. The serpent, the bronze serpent, would have been a symbol of death and poison and sickness. In the same way that the serpent, the, the bronze serpent, becomes not just a sign of sin or sickness, it's a sign of their sin, they were rebelling against God, and it's a sign of their sickness, which was caused by their rebelling against God. Let me make sure I'm clear on this, right? The bronze serpent is a sign of both their sin, right, because... That the reason the serpents have been sent, right, is as a result of their sin. And it's a sign of their healing, their forgiveness. It's both. So that Jesus' cross then, which is kind of the ultimate sign of sin, will also become the sign, and not just the sign, it's more than that. It's kind of sacramental. It's, it's both the sign and it's the means by which Salvation and healing come. Because if you, if you think of a crucifix, if you think of an image of Jesus on the cross, I'm not, I'm not sure what your first thought is when you see such a thing, but that is the ultimate picture of human sin. Like, that is, there's lots of bad things that we could do, sure. And we could go through a long list of them. But the very worst thing humanity could do is to put to death God incarnate, right? The very worst thing that we could do is take the one who was without sin, the one who had done no wrong, the completely kind of innocent person, and crucify them. Like, Jesus on the cross is an image of the worst possible sin on the planet. However... It is also an image of our very salvation. We sang about it earlier, the old hymn, the, the old rugged cross. I will cherish the old rugged cross. That it, it, it was a symbol of, of death and sin and punishment, but it's become my salvation. Because I, I don't know... I mean, certainly I think Jesus on the cross is, is the best picture we could ever have of the worst possible thing we could ever do. But I also think that Jesus on the cross is the clearest picture of who our God is. That is, our God is a God that doesn't come and kill or come and destroy our God is a God who comes and dies. Like, it is the worst thing. Paul will talk about this in some really uh, creative ways. In his letter to the Corinthians, it's the second letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5, I think it's 521, Paul will say that Christ has become sin for us on the cross. So that with his death, not only does Christ die, but so does sin. Like sin dies. So that Christ becomes sin and then is nailed to the cross and died. So that now God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, no longer holding our sins against us. I love that. 
Like, for the longest time, I thought maybe that was like one of Job's, jobs, one of God's main job description. Like, I thought one of God's main job description was to hold sin against us. Like, God was the judge, we were sinners, and God's job was to make sure we got punished for our sin. Like, that was what he was supposed to do. That was God's job. But Paul says that Christ became sin for us and died on a cross so that God gives us the ministry of reconciliation no longer holding our sins against us. So let's be clear. The worst possible thing humanity could do, it did. And that was to crucify Jesus. But God in response to the worst possible thing that humanity could do, responds not in retaliation, not in anger, but in love and forgiveness. God raises him from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching a sermon in Jerusalem, and he says just the same thing. He'll say, they crucified him. They crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Like, that's, that's God's work. And so we're in this series, we're in this season of Lent, kind of leading up to uh, the uh, Easter and the resurrection and all that celebration. But in this season of Lent, we, we're kind of in the shadows ourselves. We're, we're remembering Jesus' 40 days in, in the wilderness, which itself was a reenactment of sorts of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. But unlike Israel in their 40 years in the wilderness that kind of pretty consistently fell and sinned and complained, Jesus overcomes all of that. Jesus becomes the one true representative of Israel who overcomes those temptations so that we now can follow in the footsteps of Jesus, commemorating those times and, and celebrating this, this season. So that the way where I find myself in this story is I find myself kind of with those ancient Israelites someone who, whose faith is not always so strong, someone whose sometimes complaints are too readily on my lips, someone who's concerned about the future and longs for the past. You know, wouldn't it be nice if um, we were still sitting the church in the round? I wasn't so far away from you and none of us had masks on and all of us were here and Half of us weren't still on Facebook or YouTube or, you know, we didn't have the, the struggles that we had or are, are having. And so I feel like I'm perpetually in need, perpetually in need of God's love and his grace and his mercy. But the beauty of it is, is that God's love and grace is mercy is perpetually available. So we come. We come again and again and again and again. We come on Sundays and we sit at the table. 
We come on Tuesday nights and we stand with our brothers and sisters and speak for justice in our city, in our county. We come on Saturday mornings to a food pantry to assist those who are providing food for our brothers and sisters, our fellow image bearers of the Lord God Almighty who are experiencing food insecurity. We live this life. We live this life, but we know this. It's, it's powerful to live the transformed life, but the transformed life has but one source, and that is the crucified and resurrected Lord. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.